we're going to transition to our panel this morning in conversation, Afghanistan politics and the impact on women. Our panel this morning focuses on a timely topic that was in and out of the news cycle recently, but is still very much a present and pressing issue for many across the world. This panel on Afghanistan politics and the impact on women will be moderated this morning by UCR alumna Nilo Ahmadi, who currently works as a case manager helping Afghan refugees. Nilo Far, thank you so much for hosting the panel this morning, and I will go ahead and turn it over to you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Denise, for the invitation. Um, and I'm excited for us to discuss Afghanistan pal um, politics and its impact on women. Um, we are joined here today by a powerhouse, Dr. Noura um, Sadiq. She is a postdoctoral research associate and lecturer at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Most recently, she co-taught the SPIA's The Politics on Public Policy as part of the core curriculum for the first year MPA students. Her research interests involve how identity, namely racialized identities and gender, influence an individual's policy preferences and political behavior. So she's doing really fascinating work. Her forthcoming book, Manuscript, um, investigates Muslims in the U.S. and how the evolution of our identities um, has influenced our policy decisions and preferences. She also writes on Black um, political behavior, focusing on the intersection of race and religion for, um, for Black Muslims. Um, welcome, Dr. Uh, Sadiq. How are you? Good, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. Thank you so much. Um, so first and foremost, how how are you doing? How is your family? Where are you speaking um, from from now in this virtual environment? So I'm currently at my sister's home in, in Maryland. That's why there's some arch nemesis logos behind me. Um, but I'm with my family and it's it feels good to spend the weekend with them because a lot has gone on this summer. And um, I think at these moments, you sort of think about what matters most to you and your connections. And for me, um, in the aftermath of the crisis in Afghanistan, a lot of things really came to realization for me. For example, um, a lot of conversations about the women in my family. I'm a fourth generation educator. My great grandmother, Vivi Latifa, was a teacher. And um, I always spoke to my grandmother and my mom a lot about it since and one of the things we spoke about was just that she never intended to get married she was very adamant about educating women <laughs> in the early 1900s and um what and then when my great-grandfather approached her for marriage she got married on one condition she said wherever i go i want to have a school for women and that was the condition that she accepted the marriage proposal and um but some of her students went on to be some of the ministers in government in Kabul afterwards in the 50s and 60s and so um a lot of this being here at like with my family right now has made me nostalgic about sort of the tradition that afghan women come from you know it's no coincidence that i'm in the education space there's generations of women before me that sort of paved the way for me and so uh i've been very nostalgic thinking about um things like that yeah i I can totally relate to that with everything yeah. happening right now. Um, I'm not sure if you still have family. I do. Um, half of our family is in Kabul right now. 
and it has been it has been an adjustment. Um, Absolutely, it's definitely been an adjustment. Um, it sounds like you come from a family of powerhouses and uh, and leaders. It's all Afghan women, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mom and grandmother. You know, it's it's our norm, right? Um, I think people are surprised when they think we like think about how strong Afghan women are, and we're like, nope, it's in our blood. Every generation's been like this, and I wish that's one of the things I hope the audience is sitting in they take away is this is this is our normal as strong intelligent women that um take chances and so i love that persist because we've been persisting and we've been resisting for generations yeah that's that is so true um my family and i we like to say that the women in Afghanistan are the lions that withstand absolutely they are resilient they are outspoken and oftentimes my mom and I we say you know like Afghan women were so tons we're so like spicy absolutely you know what I mean um Mm -hmm. so like bold that it scares people absolutely they don't expect the war that comes with us you know yeah completely so that actually segues perfectly into my next question um it was going to be what inspired you to pursue your role to pursue research um, it's one thing to be a non-man in academia. It's another to be an Afghan woman in academia. Um, so if you can elaborate more on like what inspired you and how you got to where you are now, um, that would be wonderful. Thank you. I think one of the things was when you read about Afghan women um, or women in our communities and non-white communities, their stories being told from the lens of others and that very much frustrated me even when I was an undergraduate student there's so many presumptions laden within the stories that um and that connection to community and that link is missing and so one of the things that motivated me is you know I grew up going to the library my great aunt my grandma's sister was a librarian or is a librarian Mm-hmm. in uh at stanford and so books all of that was stuff that we grew up reading was literacy was a big part of our childhood but yeah. i was like we need to be writing the stories i'm not going to sit back and wait for someone else to write my story and if you're from these communities we should be telling mm-hmm. the stories of our communities why am i waiting for a journalist who's never spent time with our community to tell our story and women need to be telling these stories you know there's such mm-hmm. a um, heteronormative perspective when it comes to um, how we think about why people are involved in politics, why people participate. And you're like, oh, women just got involved. No, we've been involved, but that involvement might look different and you're not capturing it with the empirical measurements you have. So I wanted to, um, you know, get that toolkit. So I did the PhD, got the empirical toolkit so I can use the numbers to tell our stories, you know, it's like, let's engage I'm, I'm tired of other people telling our stories, you know, like this affects our daily lives. And um, if we're actually from the community, we need to be the ones writing our future, right? And I think so much of, that's why I think it's so powerful. We started with this story, right? It's sort of like, those are the narratives we're feeding future generations and young, um, young, young, young women and children, right? And so that really put like lit the fire in me to sort of be there because I thought I'd get the degree and go work. And then I was like, no, there's something that's really bothering me about how our narratives are being told in these spaces. Oh, completely. And 
I I definitely under like relate to that, especially like in the post 9-11 world. Definitely. I'm sure you saw how Afghan women, we were used as a trope to justify invading the country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have to liberate these Afghan women. We saw Representative Maloney and countless other politicians use us as, and like our grandmothers, our mothers, as a means to justify, you know, maintaining these. Absolutely. Things. And now they left us, you know, like completely not even just abandoned us and made the situation worse, right? right. And it's, I think that's one of the things that's really dangerous about it is we've been used as a pawn in the game or there have been attempts to. And then as soon as we're not needed, we're dismissed and our voices are ignored, right? Like Afghan women were warning that this day is coming in the years leading up to this withdrawal that, right. um, you know, if you leave, if you don't bring us to the table, there were negotiations that were happening with the Taliban and Qatar, right? And Afghan women were not being um, given a seat at the table. So you're, as, as the different governments, as Qatar, as U.S., as these, like, they were like, oh, we're negotiating. If you're... I'm like, on one hand, you told us, like, you're here to save us. But on the other one, we're like, we want to be part of a negotiation. You're omitting us from being at the table. Right. You're creating that problem. So that's what makes those claims so false is because when we're actually like, it matters to be here and negotiate the future of the country and suddenly you intentionally dismiss us, then you see, it makes it worse for us, right? Oh, completely. Um, that that leads me to like, to our next question. Did the U.S. actually accomplish its goal of protecting Avon women and and children? I mean, we are being fed to the mouth of you know these this nefarious force now. So it's scary to think about. And you said you have family there, and um, my my family is in Herat. And thinking about my cousins and my aunts in Herat, I don't know what the future of education looks. They lived through the Taliban regime. One of my aunts mm-hmm. moved to the U.S. after um, the U.S. took over, and she didn't. She had like a fifth grade education. She was so um, resilient to sort of continue education, but it was embarrassing. She's like eighteen and trying to learn to read again when she came to uh, Ohio to yeah. my family. And so, in a lot of ways, it's. So there's two things. Like one, the literacy rate has increased. So in twenty nine, so in nineteen ninety five, twenty six point eight percent of Afghan women had an um, like an um, I think quote up until high school education. Yeah. And then in twenty nineteen, that number went to eighty two point eight five percent. So eighty three percent of women were getting some type of education, yeah. if the USAID numbers are correct. That's gonna that's just gonna topple down now. Right, with all the restrictions they're putting in, they claim they're better, but one is the education, one is the restrictive access to jobs, right? I mean, um, the war has left, you know, like so much um, travesty where women were the breadwinners of the home and now they're not permitted to be outside without a male accompaniment. But if no man has lived through the war and survived, right? So now you're, you're actually... Um, removing their economic means. So they're not even being treated as second-class citizens. It's like you're, um, it's beyond that. Like I don't even have the language to say how dangerous the situation has gotten for women. Yeah. Um, It's it's horrifying. And I worry for my cousins 
and my like my family's um out there so i i completely hear you i think that that segues really well into my next question um like you know we are here in, Mm in the u.s I'm often reminded how privileged we are to have gotten an education here. Absolutely. Uh, like my mother, she's illiterate. She was one of the many Avon women who didn't get a grade school education. And so she always said, you know, focus on your studies, um, work hard, um, be independent. Have, you have your own hands and feet. You don't need to rely on another human being for that. Absolutely. Um, and so we, we have this privilege of being in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also dealt with the aftermaths of Islamophobia post 9/11 and in the past two decades. Um, what have what have you witnessed in your work and in your own experiences? Um, how has how has that been? I mean, the post 9/11 reality has had so many different implications for, and that there's gendered effects to it. So. Like on a practical level, the maternal mortality rates of Muslim women increased post 9-11. So one of the measures of like a democratic society's health is like whether, you know, you can carry a full-term baby. And we saw post 9-11 that um, the mortality rate pregnancies increased for women from Muslim communities. And so on some level, on a very physical like life outcome level, um, the health, the physical health of people changed. Um, the safety changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the post 9-11 arena, the communities you come from were targeted, right? Mm-hmm. And if you appeared to be um, Muslim or Muslim adjacent, then you were targeted. And so you see the gendered effects because um, women, are, women are of all backgrounds are harassed, but that kind of targeted harassment can escalate in different ways. And then put in Islam, when there's like Islamophobic tropes associated with it. Um, in my work, I, I do a lot of survey data and I was looking at um, perceptions of discrimination. And um, one of the things I find is there's a gender difference where women perceive, when you ask women, how, is, you know, how does discrimination affect your daily life? Yeah. There's a statistically significant difference where women think it's a bigger part of daily life that they really um, report in that it really affects my daily life, right? And this is um, women who identify as Muslim across the United States. Yeah. So it's not just Afghan women, it's women from all backgrounds that are Muslim. Not all Afghans are Muslim, but I would say 99% are. And so um, it covered, it kind of like they overlap in a pretty meaningful way. And then hate crimes. I was living in Chapel Hill when the three students at UNC Chapel Hill were killed and um, what I remember is having friends that were a part of like part of that family. Um, the Dia was not Dia was the the, the male the, the victim in that hate crime. Mm-hmm. He wasn't harassed until his wife like, moved in. She visibly presents as Muslim and wears a headscarf. And then when the neighbor noticed that Craig Hicks, then he started harassing them until it led to sort of um, the situation that it led to. And so there is a gendered effect where women sort of present more, more obviously as, as the sum in some instances. And so it really, like the, the, the number of hate crimes escalated because of it. And so the culture has changed. So it's sort of like, and then for us as Afghans, it's twofold, right? So on one hand, we're dealing with consequences of what's going on in the U.S. and the backlash here. 
And then we still have family in Afghanistan and we're, we're wondering how a new war is going to affect their safety. So um, we're, there's no sort of like mental, mentally safe space for us because we're worried about the climate of our families in the U.S. and then we're worried about the climate in Afghanistan. And so it's like, we, there's no sense of like, okay, where's my safe space that I can just like feel that I have a sense of security. So that basic sense of security and peace is something that is elusive to us that we haven't had. No, not at all. And I think the, the times that I ever felt secure was when I was at the mosque or like the masjid where mm -hmm. I was surrounded by our community, people who That's understood. But later on, we find out that the U.S. government starts to implant people in our in our mosques, in these mm -hmm. community hubs, these supposed safe spaces for us. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, it, that was very unsettling to to learn, and it's it was very challenging growing up in this post nine eleven reality, and yeah. almost. Mm -hmm. I was, um, so I was in the elementary when, uh, like, with it, and I remember, like, growing up, people would, you know, make make comments, bullies are bullies, um, yeah. and they will say what they will, but it was always, like, we always had, like, we learned about Al-Qaeda when, like, when we were children, even though we had, like, no relation, no relation, right? Or, like, we learned who Osama bin Laden was, and, like, no, Osama is not my uncle, Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, just making yeah. these very, you know, like basic statements that now as adults you realize that's that was pretty ridiculous that we had yeah. to go through that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I I think about how how it's the war has affected our lives and how mm -hmm. much we did not have to go through if if it did not transpire the way it did. Right. And that's the concern, right? And I don't know if it's something, one of my biggest concerns is where, and you work directly with uh, the refugees now, or, yes, what do you think about um, children going to school now and the integration of this new wave of Afghans that, were, that have managed to escape the crisis and what kind of climate are they going to face in the different neighborhoods and regions of the U.S. that they enter? It's what something I'm, I think a lot about now is sort of, are they going to enter welcoming communities? Yeah. Is there going to be resistance? Um, it's something that that we have to really collectively, as as people that are Afghan and non-Afghan, really um, hold ourselves responsible to building these welcoming spaces. But I wonder what, yeah, yeah. Um, so I. I haven't heard from like from our families what like what their children are experiencing right now. I haven't heard of any like complaints on their end or concerns. Yeah. But then again, I am reminded that Afghans we are very proud people, and we we don't exactly share our grievances very publicly. Exactly. Either. Exactly. Um, so like when I'm so yeah, I I I have not heard anything thus far. But I read an article yesterday about how. There was this community center in Chicago with mm -hmm. um, with like orphan like Afghan children or something of the sort, and it had, and there was no uh, of like Farsi Zabon, there were no Farsi or like Pashto speakers. Whoa. And I thought to myself, we have a sizable diaspora community, or at least like like Afghan American population here in the U.S. 
why are they not being recruited? Why are they not in these spaces to help this new wave? Um, so I guess like my question for you is what is, how do we fix that? There's a lot of gaps in the, so one of the things is the Trump administration, really their restrictive policies shut down and um, decreases support for refugee resettlement agencies, right? So I don't think we have like a proper Muslim resettlement agency. We have incredible support with food food services, the Catholic Church, World Church Services, other faith-based communities. And they'll bring in interlocutors, right? But we don't necessarily, we haven't necessarily built the capacity, nor has the administration, the prior administration encouraged um, the, the growth of it, right? We're really trying to clamp down and diminish asylum numbers and things like that, right? And so a lot of these contracts are being given to teams, um, firms, organizations that um, don't have Afghans involved, right? And then when Afghans are being asked to be involved, they're not, um, there's people that are taking the paycheck and it's not Afghans. And then they're being asked to volunteer their time. So I think there's like policy gaps in terms of implementation that yeah. we need to fix. Because if you're asking for their time and language resources, pay them so that, let's say like you're an administrator and at like um, you take your time off and you can work full time and take it. And so there is money. It's not going into the hands of people who are culturally competent. And so we need to increase on a very baseline level if you're not Afghan and you involve cultural competence. And it sounds obvious to you and I and probably uh, the audience listening in, but I'm telling you, I've spoken to people at the highest level of government and federal agencies and we're like cultural competence. You're like, wow, I didn't realize how central cultural competence would be to this. And it's absolutely vital. And so just advocating for cultural competence um, two federal agencies has been a lot of the work right after August 15th. And now I think the government's kind of caught on and have been bringing in folks. Um, but it's still a push. Um, it's, there's, there's enough people, but how we get like the people that have the language access, like you said, to have the training to get involved and be put in and fill the missing pieces of the puzzle, there's still a gap. And so that's really what we're um, on a, a federal agency level and on a nonprofit level we're working on. And so for the Avon community, it's I think it's been one of the most inspiring things because they have stepped up. We are like a tiny community in the US mm-hmm. and I and they're really leading the way. And a lot of people, this is their second job. They're not getting any financial incentives. No. That frustrates me, right? You're seeing it, right? It's our moms, it's our dads. They work full time, mm-hmm. but then they're being asked to translate. But what frustrates me is there is money. People are getting paid, but they're not doing the job right. Right. And I so, think. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I was going to say that I I completely hear you on that, and I think that um, I think that brings out like another really important point is the people who have shaped these international like relation policies, like these like foreign policies, they weren't crafted with our lens. Exactly. They weren't crafted with, um, they weren't informed by us, by people who actually understand the people and the language and culture, um, or at least the other side of the spectrum, you know? Um, Absolutely. And that's why I think, again, stakeholders, when we're brought into the crisis to clean up the damage of the crisis. Right. We're not brought in as stakeholders early on in any intervention. And I think with the Biden administration, you're seeing a shift. There's a lot of really talented people 
that are political appointees or actually civil servants in the government. But we need to be at the table, right? And we need to be the ones that are, our advice and analysis is taken into consideration early on in any intervention. Because when it's not, there's a mess to be cleaned up. And then it's on us to clean it up because it's our families, it's our communities that are going to be, that are, are facing the, the, the risk, the, the harm from bad decisions, like so much harm from bad decisions, whether it's in the U.S. or in Afghanistan. And so, and, and the best, I think the heartening thing is we don't give up, we still get involved. It would be so much easier if we were involved from stage one instead of like, oops, we made the same mistakes, stage, stage nine. Like we've had other cases in Vietnam and others to learn from and um, we keep repeating the same mistakes. And so for someone in my position, where we're talking as like a, as a, as a, as someone who's, who's, a, who's a professor in a policy space, one of the things that we're, I'm like, think about the implementation and bringing in community members from stage zero, pre-planning. We don't bring people in at pre-planning. Who we've brought in in the past, there haven't been Afghans. There's been like maybe one or two. And the biggest, most dangerous thing is how we take one or two people mm-hmm. and we treat them as a monolith, like they represent everyone. I don't know if you face this, but when I'm brought in to consult on projects, they're asking questions like, how do Afghan women feel? How do we prepare? I'm like, Afghan women from where? And Afghan women from Kandahar to Kabul to Herat is drastically different. Yeah. Different religious sects, different cultural norms, different mm-hmm. topography and agriculture of what they eat. Yeah. Why, we don't think someone from Texas is like someone from Manhattan. So why are you going to assume that Afghanistan is any different? And that's what we still, as an audience, I think as, a, as Americans, we don't understand. Is like Afghanistan is not a monolith. No, it's no. So, it's so diverse, and I think it's, I think it's interesting when people like everyone knows about the war in Afghanistan. People, like mm-hmm. everyone knows someone who has you know who has served and who has spent time. And I remember like someone had asked me, "Oh, do you speak Arabic?" And I said, "No, I'm Afghan." They're like, "Oh, you guys don't speak Arabic in of in Same. Afghanistan?" Then like you are aware that the U.S. has been in my like my home country for so long but you don't even know the language that we speak exactly the language exactly. is that we speak exactly and how um, much of your own money is tax is going i'm like it's your income that's dry like that's finance financing this war how do you not know something that simple um, right. and that's and i think it's it's like it's it is dangerous to be honest like these monoliths we have of, of ones is harmful you know we are the most ethnically diverse country in asia and arguably the most ethnically diverse country in the world i need to double check but if we're not the most we're like on the top five of most ethnically diverse countries in in the globe and so when you have the kind of rich diversity we do if we're planning interventions like we are with how we're settling people it's harmful that we don't take that difference into account Oh, totally. That's that's a fantastic point. And something that my dad would say when we were children, he's like, you know, Afghanistan was the heart of the Silk Roads. Um, Absolutely. You know, exactly. we, see, we see our rugs, we see our culture, we see our art, our music. It is so rich. And mm-hmm. it has been very frustrating to just see how the media and the West has portrayed our people as, you know, as, like as oppressed and as, you know, as backwards when mm-hmm. it's quite it's the opposite so much of our 
so much of our literary traditions and things have been foundational to how we build university educations now. And I think that that disruption in knowledge is something that I hope we can recover. Like you said, and it's like, yeah, like, would a meal taste good if it wasn't for, you know, the actual resources of what we have in terms of spices from our area, but even poems, like people are constantly, Rumi seems to be like the new thing. I'm like, Rumi's from Bath. He's up there. <laughs> like, well, y'all, who would you call on Instagram if you didn't have Rumi? Like, would y'all have then, a date that I'm on a song if you knew Rumi was Afghan? Right, exactly. <laughs> There's so many like even little tidbits like that. So in in growing up here, you it's like an act of it's really you have to be you really have to spend your own time. Like you, your parents either have to spend time talking to you about it and you have to do your own work. It's not obvious to us, right? Like people our culture is is so displayed as backward and it's sort of like, well, now you're lucky to be here and um and and, and I'm like, no, I and when people see us advance, it's like, oh, it's because of the American dream. And I was pushed back against that. I'm like, no, it's because of our family's resilience and resistance to the traditions we come from. Yeah. We come from, um, I want a son has traditions of intellectual, of, of being intellectuals. That's the tradition we come from. It wasn't, you know, and that got disrupted. So we're picking up where we left off. And so I always resist buying into the American dream narrative because in a lot of ways, Unfortunately, our presence in other countries has been an American nightmare. And so we've like pushed back against the nightmare and still kept the hope, even even in moments where um, our presence has brought harm to countries, right? Oh, completely. I, um, Nora, I also wanted to ask you, what has it been like as, like not just as an individual and like a woman who's in academia, but just as like as an Afghan woman, how have you grappled with your sense of identity and the sense of being bicultural, especially with what has unfolded in like in the past two decades? Yeah, um, it's really you kind of you go through stages. You know, I grew up in Ohio, and so like my layered identity was. Um, um, I grew up in a one of the only Afghan families, so I always identified as Muslim first simply because that's the thing I had in common. I came from, I grew up in a community of Lebanese and Syrian Americans that have been in Ohio since like 1903. So generation after generation. Yeah. And so the thing I had in common with them was that we were all Muslim. So I was like, I'm American, I'm Muslim, but my grandparents didn't speak English. Um, They lived down the street from me. I spoke Farsi with them. And when my grandfather died in 2010, I really remember that day, like, a piece of my history, a piece of my legacy has passed with him. And that was the moment where I was like, no, I'm a one and it matters as much. And I really, really don't want to lose that. And there's so much value that ice just made me who I am. And um, I think it was in 2010, so it's been about 11 years that I intentionally got involved in that one community and space beyond my family because I realized that um, you know, I, if we don't do it, if we don't carry this, it's going to fade as our the elders in our family transition, you know? And so I'm proud. And the problem is, like, I'm one of the few Afghan women in the spaces I occupy. So my only concern is I don't want people to think that all Afghan women think like me. I want more Afghan women involved 
in the university space, in the political arena. So people see the multitude of experiences. As I think the thing we have in common is that we're all resilient, we're fighters and we do good work, right. but we're not a monolith. And I think our diversity is our strength and I want more of us involved. So you see the plurality of views and voices that make up like how amazing our communities. I love the fact that we're different because that plurality brings like this richness of like our, cult our, our culture and I want that represented. And so my only concern is when people see me, they think everyone is like me and I'm like, I'm one voice. The cool thing is there's so many incredible women, but I want more of us at these tables because we need to see the plurality of experiences that make up the richness of our culture. 100%. I, I relate to that very strongly. I spent the past two years campaigning in democratic politics. And oftentimes when I would hear my colleagues talk about foreign policy and, you know, fighting for like, like fighting to elect Joe Biden and Democrats up and down the ballot to help people overseas, I thought, I'm the only Afghan in this space right now who, who, um, who might disagree on like on these like on these policies mm -hmm. um, and how it's you know been detrimental like to a degree to like to our families back home. Um, and then, so I guess like what has that been like sharing like your unique lens to your fellow academics and non like non avants? It's so. Like in the democratic space, allies matter. And I think yes. for me, exactly, like I um, got through higher ed um, because of a lot of black women that were my mentors. Um, and so that's why I, I give them like 100% of the credit for opening doors for me in terms of my educational training and how far I've done is I had the moral support at home from my parents and my mom. But in terms of how to professionalize in, yeah. um, I went to school in the South for my PhD, right? So there's been like uh, Latinx uh, folks that have been integral, Asian American women and others. But for me specifically, given where I've lived, it's really been black women and their writings. But honestly, there's been one or two at every um, higher education place I've gotten training. And, um, and so there's like, there's commonalities of experiences that women of color have and so um, they, you, can't, you have things in common that you relate on and you collaborate on. My biggest thing is giving folks credit where it's due. And so for me, I'm like that, um, when I think of like politics, like, so I, I might be rambling, so this is my nerd moment, but um, the Kambahi River Collective is like a collective of, of black women who wrote, right? I always try to start class um, citing folks like that because um, if you're in America, if you're growing up in the U.S., that's the history um, of women that we need to honor and center. And it's always been marginalized. So as a marginalized woman, I connect with other marginalized women, and my goal is as they center me, I want to continue centering them. And it's a collaboration. It's sort of like working interlinking yourselves has been my strategy. It's like I might be alone, but if I have enough in common with others. If we interlink and work collaboratively, we're stronger as a collective and we need to push ourselves to the center. No one else is going to do the work for us, no. but I can't just take and, and move on. Like we, we're going to walk step and step and we're going to continue to try to push to, to center our voices because our voices remain on the, in the margins. If it's women in politics, women of color are left out. And if, if it's 
um, just looking at people of color movements, you know, um, men's historically would dominate. I think in recent years we see um, that's changed, right? That um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been very deliberate about, and you know, recentering people who are often in the margins. And it's one of the most inspiring pieces. But I think again, interlinking with people, mar other marginalized folks, is yeah. vital to sort of surviving and building a new culture in some of these places that we're working in and occupying. Oh, completely. It's the one of the strongest things that we have is allyship and not just like like taking, but paying it forward. It's not paying mm -hmm. it back, it's paying it forward so that we can help um, uh, like the younger generation um, and provide them with the resources and tools that we that we wish we had sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and learning that as, like not just as an Avalon woman, but just like as a, like as a woman, as a non-person of color in, in these spaces, we oftentimes have to always advocate for ourselves because there are so few people who are willing to advocate for us. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I think always like comes up in these conversations with other like women of color and non-men of color is this idea of resilience and having to be very strong and bold, but that can be quite exhausting. Having yeah. to always be strong and resilient. Um, and it's, like, yes, it's it's an asset, it's a strength, but we are working towards a space so that we have the ability to be softer, to be, to be you know, more, to be less, I think, guarded. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. That and that's where community matters because you want to have a place where you can sort of um, let down your guard for a minute. And if, so if you build community with the right folks, then you can, you can, put the, the strength aside and lean on to your other traits for a minute and just breathe. And I think that that's why it's so vital to build community um, in such a way. And um, I think we need more of it. I think we're starting on the right path, but I think it's the, the way our power structure is so systemic. One of the things I work on is assessing state legislators and how many um, first and second generation immigrants are in state legislators. And when I look at state legislators, the news flashes is across the US, with the exception of the state of New York and California, white men run the scene, and then maybe some white women. But predominantly, like, I'll like, give my data sets to my research assistants, and they're like, it's like Montana, Wyoming, even Colorado, and we're like, they're like, white, 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 like all the tabs, like in terms of racial group or like gender. Um, when they're like recoding, assessing. Yeah. And, and so, and the state legislators have so much power right, on a local level when you think about building together. And so, right. luckily, we're in a convening by the state of California and there's been more progress, but California can't be the only place. It's one state out of 49. We've got to build a culture to have ripple effects to combat some of the really negative policies that some states are trying to forced on the throats of women and families. Oh, totally. And um, I saw recently that IRC was describing where the new wave of Avalon refugees are settling, and they're settling in Minnesota. They're settling mm -hmm. in Texas. They're settling mm -hmm. in Richmond, Virginia. Um, they're not coming to our two coastal cities that are predominantly, uh, you know, yeah. that, that have 
communities of color, they're settling mm -hmm. in wider communities. Mm -hmm. And a part of me fears for them and is, yeah. is worried that they are going to face a lot of backlash and hate mm -hmm. for, for seeking a new life in these spaces that aren't typically the most the most welcoming there are there are good people in like in every region but they but they but, but they're not as they're not as large as they need to be right and then we not have the tools um i mean the educational curriculum like even the fact that something like critical race theory is being politicized by folks is so silly like it, right i can't even tell you what that what critical race theory means but they've turned it into like this demonic thing right and so um, yeah, right. These families moving into these spaces, we have to really think about having folks there and present because the it's going to affect them. I remember my first day of school, I was five, I didn't speak a word of English and everyone is talking to me and I don't understand and I'm terrified. And they're like, oh, we'll get her an ESL tutor. They got me an Arabic ESL tutor. So now it's two languages, Arabic spoken <laughs> to me, English. And I just started crying because I was like, I don't know what planet I'm on, but now there's like two people, different languages, and neither I can connect with until they finally spoke to my parents and realized, oh, like you were saying earlier, we didn't know you spoke Farsi. Like, what can we do to make sure this five-year-old can survive kindergarten? <laughs> and it's silly. And also, like, I'm glad I have great parents that protect because I'm a grown adult, but I still remember being five and how terrifying that first week of school is because I'm yeah. walking around and don't know, like, I just, I'm just hearing things and, like, I just still remember not understanding, like, like I just felt like I was in a planet of aliens and not because they look different, but because the words coming out of their mouth, like, sounded like radio static to me, like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so if they're moving to Minnesota, they may have similar experiences where, like, what is this language, right? And, so, <laughs> and are these education systems equipped to be like, let's bring in someone who speaks Farsi and make the transition a little easier as they acclimate to a new language? Oh, totally. And not just that, but how are they talking about my region? How are they talking about mm -hmm. my people in these history classes? Exactly. In these politics classes, are exactly. they are they demonizing my people? Like, yeah. I, like I, like as many of us experience. Um, growing up, um, when when at home we we understand how how we are not you know we're not all terrorists and how small that percentage is you know just like basic rudimentary things like that. Um, so so yeah, I completely hear you, um, Nora John. We have seven minutes left, so I wanted to ask you one last question. Sure. Um, what can people do? What can our audience do to get involved and to to help with the new wave of refugees? There's so much that can be done. Um, I think on one, on one level, finding out who the resettlement agency is in your town and assisting to be volunteers, they're going to need volunteers to help with English language instruction, with English tutors. Mm -hmm. They're going to need folks to just have a welcoming face and prepare food for them when they come in. Um, they're going to need folks to just assist, um, and, you know, as a basic process is getting them a driver's license or helping them learn how to drive. Um, or even just a friendly face. If you have kids like the, the same age of kids of a young family that have come in to play, have play dates with them, mm -hmm. it's very much just building a welcoming neighborhood for them. I think in a very, very 
basic community level, that's the kind of support we need. There's, um, depending on the region you live, you have World Church Services or Lutheran Services, you have these different agencies. And so finding out who is bringing folks into your city, and it's as easy as calling city council and asking, because usually city council has been working on this at, um, on some capacity and knows who's in charge. Right. And we need more volunteers. I was just talking to some, some classmates from, from Harvard and in Boston. It was all she wanted to know is, I'm preparing food for them. Like, where do I go? And what kind of things do I like to eat? Yeah. And we're just going to help them with something. It's as simple as that. It's just making them, like, feel like neighbors. Like, because they don't know what environment they're entering. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of trauma. So on that level, I think. And on, on a policy level, I think it is... Um, there's a lot more that, like there in terms of like donations there's love legal aid the afghan american coalition the afghan american foundation they're raising money to help assist with the legal um legal chaos they're about to enter as they try to get immigration status and if they're coming in at, with humanitarian parole they're not going to be given the same federal benefits as other immigrants so um they're really coming in still grappling with the con they're not coming in with comfort they're still going to have legal work to do there's still pathways of things they have to process that's going to take a decade right until they can finally take a, a, a seat back and so if you have financial resources to aid the u.s-based work of afghan american communities in the u.s that are helping you settle like then start there but just being a good neighbor and helping at least one family I start like I can't help everyone, but right. I'm helping one family, and we're starting from there. My my parents do much more, but my it's sort of like knowing your skill set too. Like I'm great on the policy advocacy side, so I'm on the hill and doing other things, right? Right. Why? Think. I think on a very basic level, you. I know. I will say like I I came when I was five years old to the U.S. as a political asylee. And I still remember, and we're still friends with the three American families that helped us. You know, my grandpa Gordon, my aunt Lisa, and um, they're still in our lives. And they're very much, um, they may not have known a lot about Afghans, but all, they knew enough to just be welcoming, help my mom get a driver's license, take us to get groceries, check in on us once in a while. And I will tell you, it makes a world of a difference to my parents who are in their 20s with three kids still trying to figure it out, right? Because it took us 10 years to figure out the immigration citizen a process. You know, I, I became a citizen at 22, even though I came here at five. That's how long yeah. these naturalization processes work for societies. It's not easy. So they're in for the long haul. It's a marathon and we need folks involved early just as basic support as they try to acclimate and figure out something. And they're not relying, they're not, they don't need your help. They just need support so that they can be independent and learn their own two feet. Yeah. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom, um, Dr. Noura. It has been such, it has been so lovely to hear your thoughts and okay. thank you so much for everything yeah. you're doing for our community. It's a pleasure chatting with you. All right. Thank you so much, Noura. Um, and thank you, Denise, once again, for having us both here. What an incredible start to the conference. Nilo Faramadi and Dr. Nura Sadiq, thank you for such an engaging, informative, and powerful conversation. 
I'm so glad we are recording this because I can't wait to go back and watch this again. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you very much for your insights and perspectives. This was an amazing way to start the conference and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, director of the UCR Women's Resource Center, and is produced by Rosa Castillo and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know.